Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Let's first of all pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's such a mighty word because you are a mighty God. And so Lord, do a mighty work in us. We pray through your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Good, Genesis 36, starting at verse 40, going through to the next chapter, 37 to verse 2. Genesis 36, 40. And these are the names of the dukes that came of Esau, according to their families, after their places, by their names. Duke Timnah, Duke Alva, Duke Jetheth, Duke Aholibama, Duke Elah, Duke Pinon, Duke Kenaz, Duke Taman, Duke Mibzar, Duke Magdiel, Duke Iram, These be the dukes of Edom according to their habitations in the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. And Jacob, going now on to chapter 37, and Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Joseph, being 17 years old, that was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with his sons Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. All right, now, you know, remember now, when we started this chapter, chapter 36, when we started chapter 36, we started with these words. Now, these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Then then we got this whole line of Esau, who's called Edom, which means red, and that, of course, always brings back to our mind how he sold his spiritual birthright for that bowl of red lentil stew. And when we read those words in the first verse there, now these are the generations of Esau, it's like the Lord is saying to us, now look, I'm gonna just lay out for you in very clear terms what the man looks like who's rejected God in his life. And I want you to take a good look. I want you to take a good look. I want you to take a good look at what he and his family really wanted in life. I want you to take a good look at their goals. I want you to take a good look at what they achieved in their lives. But most of all, I want you to see what eventually happened to them. And that's so important for us as believers today because God wants us to take up this whole chapter. He takes this book of Genesis, which has only got 50 chapters in it, 50 chapters, And he says, I'm going to take up a whole chapter. And it's not a short chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in Genesis. I'm going to take a whole chapter in the book of Genesis so that you can really get a good look at what man looks like without God. As a matter of fact here, it's so important to God that we clearly see Esau as the man without God that God has sandwiched this history of Esau 
in between the very important history, right in the middle of the history of Jacob, so that we can see this contrast. Esau, Jacob, Esau, Jacob. I mean, Esau set his feet in the direction of becoming great. And we see how Esau became, when we look at verse 31, and these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. When verse 31 says, these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom, God is saying to us, look, Esau's family became kings, and they ruled. Esau's sons were kings reigning over men, while Jacob's sons were shepherds reigning over sheep. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Oh, just picture that scene. I mean, just picture that scene. And, and you know where that really comes out crystal clear? A little bit later in Genesis 43, when Jacob is standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, you know, and Pharaoh's asking Jacob, so, you know, so what do you do? So what do you and your family do? And in Genesis 47, 3, we read, and Pharaoh said unto his brethren, what is your occupation and they said unto Pharaoh, thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. Now, what do you think Pharaoh thought when he, when he heard that? You know, when Jacob said, you know, thy servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers, you know? You know I just think Pharaoh kind of paused in a little bit. He says, okay, well, that's too bad. <laughs> you, know, you never got beyond taking care of these dirty sheep, you know? But I guess someone has to take care of these dirty sheep, so okay. Uh, but you're certainly not in my league, see? You're not in my league. And just imagine now if it happened, but it didn't. But let's imagine that if, if Esau was standing before Pharaoh, and the same question is put, you know, so what do you do? And Esau would have said, well, we are kings. We rule over the land. It's named after us. You know, and we can see Pharaoh says, wow, a family of kings, just like me, not bad. You've done very well for yourselves. You're in my league. Now, when Paul spoke to the Corinthian church, as Paul spoke to the Corinthian church, he told them, just look at yourselves. Just look at yourselves. Just look at yourselves in the mirror in 1 Corinthians 1.26. 1 Corinthians 1.26, when he said, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, that he might bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, what Paul was saying to the Corinthians was, just look at yourselves, you're not in Pharaoh's league. <laughs> you know, he said, you're not what the world considers wise. You're not what the world considers mighty. You're not what the world considers noble. You're what the world considers foolish. You are what the world considers weak. You are what the world considers nothing. God chose you to confuse the world and to prevent anyone from taking credit for what God has done and does. But God works through us. He works through us, and and we're seen by the world as foolish and weak, but he still works through us. Reminds me of a letter I got this last week. It read like this. 
Thank you, Tom Cantor, for your big brain. <laughs> I thought I had a problem with other parts that were big, but not my brain. But anyway, he says, thank you, Tom Cantor, for your big brain. Okay. Your wit and erudition, which I don't even know what that means, but anyway, you wear so lightly. And then she says, I used to see signs on the highway for some creation museum. I'd shake my head and mutter, in this day and age, who would put together something like that? You know, now I know. And the laugh turned out to be on me. Years later, I ran across your radio Bible study and started reading the Bible because of your intriguing historical insights. One day, I just knew what I was reading is true. A light turned on with the same assurance that one knows anything mundane. Completely different outlook, changed life. See, what was she saying? What's saying there? A creation museum in this day and age? That seems so foolish and weak-minded. Well, I mean, who would have a creation museum in this day and age? Only someone who the world sees as foolish and weak-minded. Well, 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confuse, confound the wise, and the, chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And Esau's family was considered great in the world's eyes, but Jacob's family was considered weak and foolish in the world's eyes. And that was hard on Jacob's sons to see the sons of Uncle Esau reigning. But Jacob's sons, they had the promises from God that they would be established. That's what God told their great-grandfather Abraham in Genesis 12 too. Right off the bat in the calling of Abraham, he says, but I will make of thee a great nation and I'll bless them and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And Jacob's sons would be saying, you know, a great nation? A great nation, Esau, that's a great nation. We're not a great nation, we're just a bunch of shepherds. I mean, Esau's family, they're a great nation. You know? Looking at Esau's sons, Jacob's sons would be tempted to say, he must have forgotten his promises. God must have forgotten his promises. I mean, their kings were shepherds. Looks like the Lord is slack concerning his promise. But the Bible says in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord's not slack concerning his promise, the son men count slackness. See, Esau's family, they were wicked. They were wicked to the core. They were prosperous, and that's when we're tempted to look at them and to say, you know, like at Esau's family or those who are wicked and prosperous, in Psalm 73.3, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But God does things in his own time and that's what God means when he says in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. You know, when God said about the word of God that it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it, that means it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it in my own time. That's God saying, in my own time. The promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they did work, but they worked late. They worked later, but they lasted. They lasted. Okay, now, as we come to the end of this chapter, in verse 40, it said, these are the names of the dukes that came of Esau according to their families after their places by their name. So we finish this chapter again with emphasizing the fact this was a family of powerful ruling dukes compared, like we said, to Jacob's family of, of shepherds. And the question is, 
what does God think of Esau? What's he think of Esau? We got a comparison here. Esau and Jacob's right in the middle of the history of Jacob. We got this about Esau. So what's God think? Malachi 1.2 tells us what God says, thinks. Malachi 1.2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein have, I, have you loved us? Thou loved us. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. See, God said, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Why did God hate Esau? Why did God hate? Because Esau had no need for God. He had no need for God. The people who need God, they're described in Isaiah 55.1. Isaiah 55.1. Here's a description of the people who need God. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy, eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Wherefore do you spend your money for that which is, that is not bread? and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness, incline your ear, and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The person who needs God is thirsty for God. That's who he is. And to that thirsty person, God makes his invitation. Ho, everyone that's thirsteth, come you to the waters. A person who needs God feels himself morally, spiritually poor, morally, spiritually bankrupt. To that poor person, God makes his invitation. He that hath no money, come ye by, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The person who needs God has no deep soul satisfaction. And to that person, God makes his invitation. Wherefore do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me. Eat ye that which is good. Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear. Come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. And that's the invitation. Three times in that passage, God says to the person who needs God, because he feels that he's thirsty, poor, and unsatisfied, he says, come, just come, come to God. That's the great invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But for God's invitation to come to himself, Esau says, I'm just fine. I'm just fine. Thank you very much. I'm not thirsty for God. I don't feel poor. I don't feel like I've got an unsatisfied life. I don't need God. God hates him. So this chapter ends with tragic words in verse 43, where it says, this dukes, and then it says, these be the dukes of Edom, according to the habitations in the land, don't miss this part, in the land of their possession, in the land of their possession. He's Esau, the father of the Edomites. They were in the land of their possession. They had arrived. They were happy in the land of their possession. And that phrase, in the land of their possession, it marks the difference between the believer and the men of the world. The men of the world are in the land of their possession. They've got it. They're happy. The believer's not. The believer's waiting for heaven because he says, he's not, not home till I get there. 
All right, so now we close chapter 36 on these generations of Esau, and frankly, we're tired of it. We're tired of reading about the man of the world and all of his man-centric, atheistic orientation. And now at the last, we come to, okay, you know, we're, we're like uh, running out of breath here, Lord, so we need to come to the generations of God's man, Jacob, finally. And so verse two is really important in the next chapter. Chapter 37, verse two, it's the verse we've been waiting for. These are the generations of Jacob. All right, here come the army of God. Here comes the force that's gonna fight the forces of evil. And so we're ready now for the generations of Jacob. Bring them on, all right? So here comes the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob. We're reading, Joseph being 17 years old was feeding the flock with his brethren and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father the evil report. And we, look, we read that, we go, what? <laughs> These are the generations of Jacob. Where are the generations of Jacob? I mean, you know, we're looking around here, we're like, well, I don't see him in this verse here. Why are we reading about a 17-year-old kid who tattles on his brothers? I mean, we're supposed to be reading about the generations of Jacob, just like we read about the generations of Esau. They got all their heroes. They got all their dukes. Where's the list of all the heroes of Jacob and his family? I don't get it. Where's the list of all the mighty sons of Jacob? Okay, 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 all right, all right. So, you know, it's just one verse. So, look, I got to read a little farther. I read a little farther and it'll come. I don't really understand this verse. Verse two, these are the generations of Jacob. And then we get an account of a 17-year-old boy named Joseph tattling on his brothers. All right, I mean, I'll just read a little further here. I'll get beyond this 17-year-old boy named Joseph. Okay, let's see. Verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and made a coat for him. Oh, it's still about Joseph. Okay, maybe the next verse. The next verse, we'll get to the generations of Jacob. Let's see, verse four. When his brethren saw that his father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him, could not speak, speak peaceably unto him. Still about Joseph. Okay, well, maybe in the next verse, we'll get to the generations of Jacob. Let's see, verse five. Joseph dreamed a dream. He told it to his brethren. They hated him at the more. Still about Joseph. Well, maybe in the next verse, we'll get to the generations of Jacob. Verse six, he said unto them, here I pray you this dream, which I have dreamed. Still about Joseph. Okay, maybe in the next verse, verse seven. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance. Still about Joseph. Maybe the next verse. Eight. His brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, and shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? They hated him. Yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Still about Joseph. Maybe the next verse. Well, okay, you know, on and on and on and on. All these verses in this chapter, they're all about Joseph. From verse two, We've been looking for the generations of Jacob, and all we read about is this 17-year-old boy named Joseph here, 17-year-old son of Jacob. Where are the generations of Jacob? We were promised it in verse two, and all we read about is a 17-year-old kid named Joseph, and all we can conclude from all this, from verse two, Joseph alone is the generations of Jacob. What? Okay, let's see if we can kind of wrap our hands around this a little bit. Why verse two? We're told that we're gonna read about the generations of Jacob, and then all we read about is one person, one out of the 12, Joseph, the 17-year-old, 
the name Joseph, the only conclusion that we can come to is that Joseph alone is the generations of Jacob. That's all you can say. Joseph, he looks so young. He's so unimpressive. He's so unlikely, but he's the generations of Jacob. He is. By calling Joseph the generations of Jacob is to say that Jacob's future is dependent on this one person, Joseph. I mean, where this is leading us to is to embrace this all-important statement in verse two. Instead of skipping over and saying, well, I don't understand what that's in there for. Maybe it was a mistypo or something. <laughs> in verse two, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph, stop. These are the generations of Joseph, In a very real sense, this is the most important statement in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. Now, don't say, you know, well, what is he talking about? You know, I mean, it's like, how can this be the most important thing? You know, it's just like introducing the generations of Jacob, and it's just like a little confusing, right? But stay with me on this. Don't check out, because this statement is so important, This statement in verse two is absolutely critical to understanding the history and the future of the Jewish people. This statement, Genesis 37, two, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. Really, to understand what it's saying here in verse two, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph, is critical to understanding not just the history of the Jewish people, but the history and the future of mankind. That's how important this statement is. Well, when we look at it, Verse two, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. We see that the continuation of the generations of Jacob is dependent on Joseph because the rest of the book of Genesis is gonna be a history of how the Jewish people will face extinction and annihilation. Boy, that's new. From a famine, right? (laughs) And the famine will mean that there will be no more generations of Joseph, full stop, unless one person saves the Jewish people from famine, and that person will be Joseph. And he will bring the Jewish people down into Egypt and feed them. And the Jewish people would become extinct and annihilated from the famine if there was no Joseph. So we're gonna see in Joseph that he alone is responsible for the continuation of the generations of Jacob because he alone saves the family of Jacob from starvation by feeding them and caring for them. So the reason the statement in Genesis 37 two, these are the generations of Jacob, Joseph, is the most important statement in the book of Genesis is because in the life of Joseph, we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph is the most important person, despised and rejected as he was. He's the most important person in the family of Jacob. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.com. 
friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org, Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Starting September 25th, join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.